I'm Dr. Michael Stubblefield. I'm the medical director for cancer rehabilitation here at Kessler, and I'm the national medical director for our Revital Cancer Rehabilitation Program. I've gotten the honor of being your MC tonight. This is our third cancer program that we put on here, and we've changed it up. I think we did spinal cord, then we did brain, and now we're going to do fatigue. Fatigue is the most common thing that cancer patients complain of. We've got several hours of it for you tonight, which will probably make you fatigued. So I, I hope you will bear with us, but we have a really nice lineup. My job is just to introduce everybody as best I can and kind of run you through things. When I'm not playing doctor, I'm actually a photographer. Those of you who know I actually shoot birds, I've expanded into photographing patients and staff. Um, largely because nobody else really does it. So this is one of our inpatients that was up at Saddlebrook, and thank you to all the therapists who uh, helped me get in there to photograph her. And I just wanted to tell you a little about her, because this is a typical sort of patient for us, and really just to kick off the program. So typical 67-year-old woman, hypertension, hypothyroidism, rheumatoid arthritis, sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome. Oh, and advanced non-small cell lung cancer. So initially diagnosed in 2008, and at that time she was found to have multiple brain metastases as a result of this. She was treated with carbotaxol and whole brain radiation, followed by bevacizumib. <clears throat> so those of you who don't know, um, who are kind of new to the cancer world, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer was and still is a death sentence. The difference is, Five, 10 years ago, these patients, if you looked at five years across all of them, your survival rate was like three, 5%. Because of these new biologic agents like bevacizumib, these patients are living much longer. And we're getting up to like a 20% five-year survival rate with patients who were diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. And I think I can predict that those numbers will get better and better going forward as we get better and better treatments and understand the biology of these tumors well. So this lady who is effectively uh, metastatic shortly after diagnosis comes in in June to the urgent care center with a bunch of neuro symptoms and guess what? She has progression of the disease. She did finally fail the bevacizumib with hemorrhagic lesions. So she comes in due to a low performance status fatigue. She needed to be tuned up before she could continue additional treatment. So this is what I would say is common across almost any cancer patient that comes into the inpatient setting. It's also a huge problem in the outpatient setting, which uh, my colleague, Dr. Conneback here, who's going to be speaking to you next, will talk about. And with that, I'm actually going to get off the platform. I'm going to go finish my dessert, and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Conna. So I'm going to do a brief introduction about cancer-related fatigue. As you know, we've got a, a jam-packed program here, and a lot of these topics are going to be covered by other people. So I'll just do a little bit uh, of a, a brief introduction about kind of like, I guess kind of like an overview. So the first thing I'll talk about is the need for cancer rehab. So those of you who don't work with cancer patients directly, I'll give you a, a brief uh, intro to uh, what is cancer rehab um, and why do we need it. Um, Basically, we have a lot of patients um, who luckily, through advances in science, like Dr. Stubblefield had mentioned, are now living many years after a cancer diagnosis, which is great. The downside of that, of course, is that many people are living with the side effects of cancer and cancer treatment. So a lot of the downstream effects 
of cancer that we people frankly never really lived long enough to experience. Now we're seeing those for the first time and, and we're all kind of in this room on this journey together to try to help them. So it's an exciting field, that's why I went into it. And I'm sure that's the reason a lot of you guys went into it too, amongst other reasons. Um, I like to think of cancer kind of, kind of like becoming sort of like a chronic disease. Like kind of, um, if you think about it, when you had like the AIDS crisis, I guess in a similar way in the 80s or 90s, if you found out that you, you know, had, were diagnosed with AIDS in 1982, probably things weren't, you know, the future was pretty bleak in that case, right? And we lost a lot of, um, you know, great people in the AIDS epidemic. Now, if people HIV uh, or AIDS, they live a very long time, right? AIDS is now kind of a chronic condition, right? And I hope that cancer will become that way too, right? And, and, and it looks like we're moving in that direction every day, which is great. So what do we manage in cancer rehab? Uh, as a team, we manage all of these different things here, pain, fatigue, issues with mobility, range of motion, deconditioning, weakness, uh, trismus, spasticity. So I'm gonna take an hour and talk about each one of these. Thank you guys for staying until midnight. Just kidding, I'm gonna talk about only one of these. Uh, that's fatigue, all right. So what is fatigue? Everybody here familiar with fatigue? We know what that looks like, yeah. All right, I, I uh, just became a dad like two months ago, so I'm familiar with this guy's facial expression. Uh, I'm glad we have coffee in the back, everyone. Um, but, but really, there's an important distinction between what regular fatigue is, which we all experience on a Monday, versus what is cancer-related fatigue. So there's a big difference, and I'll tell you about those differences. Um, and there, so there are a lot of different definitions uh, to fatigue, right? Those of you who work in, say, like lymphedema know that there are many different definitions of lymphedema. And when you have a lot of different definitions, it's hard to kind of unify the science and uh, compare studies, which is too bad. This is uh, one definition that I like uh, from the Journal of Clinical Oncology. They say it's fatigue. It lasts greater than two weeks and occurs every day. So they, they use two weeks as a cutoff. Some people say six weeks, some people say a month, six months. <clears throat> uh, it's out of proportion to exertion. So this is a big one, I think. Um, I've had a patient that where, you know, and maybe you, you guys who, who, who deal with fatigue in this room know too, it, sometimes people get up and they turn off the light switch and they're, they're wiped, right? That's, it's out of proportion to the amount of exertion. They're just as tired as if they ran around the block and all they did was get off the couch, right? So it's out of proportion to exertion. It's associated with distress and functional loss, of course. Naturally, it's associated with a cancer diagnosis or chemotherapy. And then lastly, it's not explained by a, by a primary psychiatric diagnosis. So of course, it's not due to depression um, or any other kind of uh, problem like that. So uh, really what I would just try to remember is that it's out of uh, proportion to exertion, I think is a, a big uh, clue. So we have the NCCN, that's the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. I think uh, we have a talk later also gonna be talking a little bit about this, so I won't go too much into it, but um, these, are the, these are the kind of guidelines that oncologists and the oncology care team, these are the ones that they use. So here's their definition. So this is from their point of view, that's the only reason I included this. So from their point of view, uh, they see it as a distressing, persistent, subjective sense of physical, emotional, and or cognitive tiredness or exhaustion related to cancer or cancer treatment. Again here, not proportional to recent activity, and then of course it has to interfere with your usual functioning, right? All right, so Dr. Stubblefield alluded to this, but what is the most common complaint of cancer patients? 
Fatigue, right, okay, holy, <laughs> all right. Fatigue is the most common side effect of cancer and cancer treatments. It occurs on about 60 to 96%. That's almost 100% of patients um, in some studies. Um, and then importantly, it may persist for months or even years after successful treatment completion, right? So 30% of uh, patients in one, st one study continued to report fatigue one to five years after diagnosis, and then 63% uh, of them even f after five years. So from five to 10 years, they continue to feel fatigued. This is another interesting study I, I put in this talk just because I think it's uh, kind of illustrative. It's an old one now from 2000. But this patient, these guys, they looked at 538 cancer patients. And then let's look at, and this is a viewpoint study, right? From the oncologist's point of view, and I would expand this to say all of uh, the doctor community who, who are here are, are guilty of this. They thought that pain was more clinically relevant than fatigue, right? So 61% of the oncologists, when you ask them what's the most important thing that a cancer patient is dealing with, would check the box for pain. Only 37% of people said fatigue. Now let's ask the patients. The patients said, 61% of them said that fatigue affected their life every day much more than pain. And which one do you think in the clinic do we ask about more? Of course, how are you feeling? How's your pain? Where does it hurt? Those, nobody's asking about fatigue. And that's evidenced by this, 52% of the patients who, 52% uh, of the patients said that they never reported fatigue to their oncologist. I would guess probably because they were never asked. And f only 14% of them had received treatment or advice on how to manage their fatigue. So fatigue is the most, uh, the number one symptom in the patient's point of view and only 14% of people had been given advice on it, right? Um, and then 33% of the patients with fatigue had said that they uh, didn't feel like they had received adequate treatment. All right, so what causes fatigue? So we're gonna do a fancy Venn diagram with this here. The answer is what causes fatigue is that it's multifactorial, right? All right, so that, make, that means complicated. Here we go. Number one, demographic factors. So age, income, and marital status have been linked to fatigue. Let me see if I can get this clicker to work. Here we go. Psychosocial factors uh, also. Uh, there's evidence that depression is linked to it, probably not surprising. Um, and then the catastrophizing coping style. I think most people know what I'm talking about there. Health behaviors are linked to increased fatigue. These are epidemiological studies we're talking about here, right? Physical activity and cardiopulmonary fitness do f contribute. There are the comorbid symptoms, pain, menopausal symptoms, sleep disturbance, comorbid medical conditions, if you have cardiovascular disease, being overweight. Um, and then there are the biological factors such as anemia. If you're anemic, you're gonna be fatigued, right? Um, and then the last one, and certainly not least, is inflammation. There is evidence that the number one real uh, cause, well, there are many causes, like I said, but one of the biggest contributors, uh, they think, is this one, inflammation. So we're going to talk about that for a couple minutes. All right. So inflammation, basically. What is inflammation? It's the body's response uh, to infection or injury. And inflammation is mediated by a bunch of different cytokines, right? These are IL-1, IL-6, and TNF-alpha. Um, those are the big three, and I'm only mentioning that because I'm going to mention it again later, and there'll be a quiz at the end. Um, and then, there's, and then uh, additionally, there are the local and the systemic effects of inflammation, right? So, you know, when you get a cut, you're going to get inflammation there. It's going to be red, it's going to be swollen, fine. 
there's also the systemic effects, particularly in people getting radiation and, um, and uh, even the tumor itself uh, or chemotherapy causes a systemic inflammation, right? And that can affect your central nervous system. And that's what we're going to talk about. <clears throat> so this is, a, this is a, an interesting study here. Um, it talks about the neuroendocrine immune mechanisms uh, of patients with cancer. So if you look at the left side, here you can see the cancer and its treatments, right? You got the tumor, you have metastases, chemotherapy, stress, surgery, radiation, all these kinds of things result in, it's in the red box here, inflammation. This, that's due to the pro-inflammatory cytokines, like I mentioned. Uh, mostly, and we won't get into the other things. Um, what does inflammation do? So this is a cycle here. It causes, it causes problems with your sleep-wake cycle, right? So decreased sleep efficiency, more time awake, increased latency to sleep, so more time spent lying in your bed staring at the ceiling counting sheep. Um, so it affects the sleep-wake cycle. Now that affects your neuroendocrine system. So you have a uh, flattened cortisol response um, and uh, a bunch of different issues, which I won't go into. But those, those are basically your neuroendocrine system. And this is a cycle here, so they feed into each other. The ultimate endpoint of all of these things are these CNS effects. Um, and they, and, oh, sorry, and then the, and then all of these CNS sort of depression, uh, dealing with serotonin, a lot of different neurotransmitters, a lot of different stuff, results in depression, fatigue, impaired sleep, cognitive dysfunction. But this is the one we're here to talk about today, which is fatigue. All right. So again, just mentioning it, different picture, same thing. Uh, we have cancer, infection, wounds, stress, cancer treatments. Those are going to cause immune cells to release their cytokines, and then that's going to have uh, an effect on your central nervous system, particularly serotonin, dopamine, and uh, causes decreased appetite, decreased energy, those kinds of things. Changes in your sleep. And impaired learning and memory. All right. <clears throat> so... TNF actually, there's a, so I, I, you know, it's worth mentioning that this is actually a real thing. This is not um, something that people sort of feeling, and it's kind of like a wishy-washy sort of topic, uh, which is what a lot of people consider it. Um, so I like to put a lot of the scientific stuff in here, and then you, you know, you can remind your patients that this is a real thing. What they're feeling is real. We have scientific evidence that this exists, and I'm going to show you a couple slides for that. Um, the first thing is to establish that patients who have chemotherapy and cancer treatments have increased levels of uh, inflammation in their bodies. <clears throat> so this red line is the patients with no chemotherapy and those who did get chemotherapy. And this is the amount of there's the inflama inflammation, basically, inflammatory markers uh, that they have in their bloodstream. So you can see it's higher at all time points, at the beginning, at six months, and then again at one year. So we established they have more inflammation in their body. Now, what does it do on your brain? This is a complicated slide. <clears throat> but briefly, we'll look down here first. These are the patients who have low levels of that exact uh, cytokine that I was talking about on the previous. They have a low markers. Um, and you can see the activity in the baseline here at the brain is you know, nice and lit up. It's red. It's orange. Compare that to here. So these are the patients who have high levels. right? And you can see here, just even with the picture, that the amount of activity happening in their inferior frontal gyrus, the, 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 the um, anterior part of the brain uh, is lower. Do you guys see that here? Uh, you can compare those two here. And even at one year later, uh, the patients who had low levels of inflammation had more brain activity even one year later. Okay. So again, this is a real thing. We can even measure it in a scanner. 
the brain activity is less. Um, this is kind of an interesting thing, talking about the genetics. This is now we're entering the era of personalized medicine, right? Very exciting. Um, it is very exciting. Um, this, uh, here, this study is showing that they have these um, genetic markers that correlate to the severity of fatigue. So they looked at patients who are having very bad fatigue and the patients whose fatigue is uh, not as intense. And they found that there is some genetic link between those two. Um, and uh, this is, again, a, a more complicated slide here. But it's basically showing that they were able to calculate a score based on the genetics. And that score sort of correlated to uh, how bad the fatigue was. So basically, they showed that patients with more of a high expression alleles of these certain uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, the certain genetic components, um, had more severe fatigue and cognitive complaints than people who didn't have those genetic components. So essentially, they concluded that the genetic risk index is significantly associated with greater fatigue and cognitive changes. So what does that mean? That means we can, even with a genetic test, predict before chemotherapy starts, uh, before all the cancer treatment starts, we can even predict who's going to be uh, more affected by fatigue. And then we can you know, send them to rehab earlier, right? And uh, do prohab and things like that, like we try to do with Revital. Uh, these are the guidelines. This makes uh, you know, your eyes kind of blur over when you see this. But <clears throat> basically, uh, and we're going to talk about screening. We have a whole talk about that, which is going to be great. So I I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, but basically, the, uh, again, those same kind of oncology guidelines state that fatigue should be screened, assessed, and managed. Uh, all patients should be uh, screened using age-appropriate measures. The uh, fatigue should be evaluated, monitored, treated promptly, all that. <clears throat> it also says that healthcare professionals experienced in fatigue evaluation and management should be consulted, right? That would be us. We're happy to see ourselves in there. Rehab doesn't make it into a lot of these oncology guidelines. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it just says we should implement the guidelines. And then look at that. Look who's in the last, very dead last line of these guidelines here. We made it. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, physical medicine, and diagnosis from end to life. Sorry to speech therapists and everybody else who didn't make it in this, but uh, <laughs> we're, at least we made it into something. Then the oncologists, well, you know, they're going to read it. We're last, but we made it. All right. Um, primary evaluation. Um, this is a little bit about uh, what, how, do we, how do we treat fatigue. So that's what, we're kind of what I'm transitioning to here. Uh, of course, we're going to do the focus history. We're going to consider uh, the cancer recurrence. Um, we're going to look at what makes the fatigue worse, what makes it better, right? Kind of the standard workup that we do. Um, and then there's the management of the symptoms and treatable contributing factors. So that's what I'm going to talk a little bit about next. So there's, like I said, there are a lot of things that cause fatigue. Some of them we can't do anything about, but some of them, like depression and anemia, we can do something about. Yeah. So it would be tragic if somebody was fatigued uh, and they were anemic the whole time, right? We never even checked. Or they have hypothyroid. That can make you fatigued, right? Um, so it's worth looking into those treatable causes of fatigue. And that's a step that a lot of people skip. And it's an, it's an important one, obviously, because we're treating them. And then, you know, if they were hypothyroid the whole time, that's, uh, that's a real tragedy. <clears throat> so first, identify, treat underlying factors. This is more of a, you know, for the physicians in the audience, I guess, more of a treating the underlying factors, uh, anemia, depression, uh, sleep disturbances and pain, uh, different medical conditions. So what do we do about it? 
I do a quick time check, make sure we're not running behind. Um, so there are a couple different interventions or categories of interventions. The first is the pharmacologic, right, the medications. The biggest medication or the, 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 the class of medications really that we use the most are going to be the psychostimulants, and I'll talk about that. There are also the behavioral and psychological interventions. We're going to talk a lot more about that. Uh, there are the exercise interventions, um, which, of course, a little preview is a very important aspect of this. Uh, and then there's the complementary and alternative medicines. So let me talk a little bit briefly about uh, those, just, as, uh, just by way of introduction, I guess. Um, so there are the psychostimulants. I'm not going to bore everybody with this, because I know it's not of interest to most people. But <clears throat> there are the two most common psychostimulants that have been studied are going to be uh, modafinil, which is provigil, and then methylphenidate, which is Ritalin. And there are different formulations of all of these meaning extended release, short release, all those kinds of things. Um, so there was a review. One showed that there is improvement using methylphenidate, meaning Ritalin. Uh, another one showed that modafinil works great. And then another trial showed that modafinil didn't do anything. Um, so the, basically, the research is sort of all over the place with this. Um, and we don't have a clear guideline. In my experience, I don't know about Dr. Stubblefield's experience, I most most patients have had fatigue. They have so many different things going on. They're really not interested in starting a new medication. Uh, I rarely uh, even bring this topic up. It has, you know, these medications have a lot of side effects. Um, but when I do give it to them, I use modafinil 200 milligrams. But anyway. Um, lastly, uh, so this is the exciting stuff. Here's like where, where we're going with in the future as far as the medications go. Uh, the strongest evidence that looks like on the horizon for the treatment of cancer-related fatigue are anti-cytokine therapies. So like I said, we had those pro-inflammatory cytokines, right? Does anybody remember the three, the three cytokines I said? <laughs> IL-1, TNF, alpha, all right. Um, I was going to be impressed if somebody remembered that. Um, <laughs> so the medications, these medications basically block those, right? And we already have medicines that do that, for, for example, for rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, these rheumatological problems. Uh, we already have medications that do that. Uh, TNF, remember that was the one from the graph and the one that we saw the brain scan with? We have antagonists to those. We already have drugs that block those. Um, and there they are, infliximab and uh, those etanercept and stuff like that. So those drugs already exist. Um, and, there are, and they have been found in some studies uh, are, are looking into it and are finding that they are effective in reducing fatigue associated with those conditions. So we may have a medication or at least medication to help with fatigue. I don't think it's going to cure it, uh, but every little bit helps. So that's exciting. <clears throat> All right. Next, we'll talk about the psychological interventions. Uh, these are primarily uh, designed to provide information to the patients. Uh, they reduce stress, they improve coping, um, and they increase the uh, social support, of course. And we're going to talk, uh, we're going to have a, a great talk about this coming up. Oh, sorry, I, I was looking at the, you guys, I can't see that. There you go, now you can see it. Um, they also have beneficial effects on fatigue. Lastly, there are the complementary and alternative medicines. As you guys know, a lot of the cancer patients are interested in this kind of thing, which is understandable, right? Um, so we get a lot of questions and requests about this, right? Uh, there is some evidence of using acupuncture, tai chi, uh, different energy therapies, uh, and uh, yoga as well. So exercise. Exercise is 
probably it has the best evidence that we have for treating for fatigue. Okay, I hope I'm not giving away somebody else's lecture. Sorry, guys, who, was, who are coming after me. Uh, steal your thunder, totally stole it. Uh, but exercise is the highest level of evidence uh, for this. Um, and they're going to go into a lot more detail about this. So this is just kind of an introduction. So the exercise interventions, they show beneficial effect on fatigue during uh, and particularly after treatment. Uh, there's home-based exercises uh, shown to be not quite as effective. Uh, but then the supervised aerobic exercise, right? You guys are happy about that. How show a medium or a significant reduction compared to those who have no exercise. So exercise does make a difference. Uh, that doesn't mean convincing a patient who's fatigued to exercise is easy. Uh, you guys know that better than me. Um, but there you have it. The last thing that we can do is our energy conservation techniques. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, too. Um, uh, and this is, uh, this is something that you guys do a great job with. Um, but one of the barriers to having patients do come to therapy, of course, that they have so many other appointments. Uh, they're doing radiation, they have young children, you know, whatever it is, you guys know, there's so many barriers to have people come back. So what I usually tell them is that all of these energy conservation strategies here can really just be educated, uh, the patients can just be educated only in, in, in just a few visits, right? So just because they're busy, I try to convince them to at least, you know, get, learn some of the strategies. I'm not saying they have to go for six to eight weeks, right? That would be, the, of course, that would be the best, but... Um, we can at least encourage them to, to, to learn some of the techniques, right? And these are listed here, and we're going to talk about those. Uh, I'm not, but other people, are going to, other people who are much more knowledgeable about this <laughs> than me are going to talk about this. Um, as far as pacing yourself, delegating, doing activities during your busiest uh, or your uh, most energetic portion of the day. So according to the American Cancer Society, what, do we, what should we be telling our patients? And I try to remember these. Um, you set up a daily routine that lets you be active and when you feel your best. Right? So you do the stuff when you're feeling your best. When you're feeling fatigued, don't try to uh, you know, rearrange the furniture or, or do whatever you need to do. Uh, you get regular light to moderate intensity exercise, get fresh air. Um, you need a balanced diet, drink plenty of water, prevent dehydration. Control your symptoms, pain, nausea, depression, take, the, take your medications, see your appropriate uh, physicians to get those kind of uh, conditions under control, if they're not already. Um, keep the things you use often within easy reach to kind of save energy. Uh, enjoy your hobbies and other activities that give you pleasure. Use relaxation, uh, sorry, use relaxation and visual techniques to reduce stress. Um, balance activities with rest so as to not interfere with your nighttime sleep. A lot of people take uh, daytime napping and things like that, or do daytime napping and things like that. So. Um, another aspect of cancer-related fatigue is not feeling relieved by rest, right? So when we feel fatigued, uh, we take a nap and we wake up refreshed. A lot of patients with cancer-related fatigue will not. And because that's because just because you take a nap doesn't mean that your level of inflammation in your body has gone down, right? So um, that's an important one. And then lastly, ask for help if you need it. Um, all right, so in summary, we have uh, the treatment team members refer to a physiatrist or supervised rehabilitation program. Exercise, category one recommendation. Uh, the, for, to make the diagnosis, we need to screen the patients and we need to treat their underlying medical causes. If they are any, we should at least look into them. Uh, those include anemia and hypothyroid. Those are the two biggest, uh, most common offenders in addition to depression. Um, and then if there's no underlying cause, the guidelines say that we should uh, refer to uh, knowledgeable people who can treat this effectively. 
And then lastly, for the doctors in the audience, we're talking about the psychostimulants. That's, there's a reason that one's last on this list. All right, so cancer-related fatigue, common, persistent, difficult to treat. Um, the causes of cancer-related fatigue, not well known, not well understood, definitely multifactorial, that means complicated, uh, but it's associated uh, with anemia, high body mass index, diabetes. Some different types of cancer are more associated with fatigue than others, don't really know why. Uh, perhaps it may have to do with the treatment of them, but who knows. Uh, the inflammatory cytokines, right, the markers of inflammation. Uh, cortisol dysregulation. And then one of the most effective treatments for cancer-related fatigue is exercise. This is a level one recommendation. Uh, aerobic and resistance exercise are both effective, but I'm gonna stay out of it because there are people who know a lot more about that than me, so I'll let them talk about that. Um, and then lastly, there are the cognitive and uh, behavioral therapies. Uh, we can recommend those, and those can help mitigate their symptoms, uh, as do those uh, psychostimulants as well, if need be. All right. And that's all I got. If you have any questions, let me know. That's how to reach me. So, <clears throat> true to form, Dr. Khan is like five minutes ahead of schedule. So, <laughs> nicely done, which means we do have a little time for questions. Are we going to screw up the recording? No, okay. Um, if you don't want to be, we're recording these. So, if you don't want to be on the recording, then whisper in my ear and I'll say something. Fair <laughs> enough. Are there any questions? I'm going to lead off. I have a question. Sure. Uh-oh. Um, so <laughs> Quick, somebody else. <laughs> right. So a lot of, so I'm guessing our, our audience is like mostly non-physiatrists, non-physicians. That's right. Um, so when they see somebody who comes in with cancer-related fatigue, what red flags would prompt them to try to encourage their patient to go to a physician for a medical workup of the fatigue as opposed to just assuming it's cancer-related? Um, that's a good question. I would say the number one thing would be if they don't have close physician follow-up. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if you have a patient and they haven't seen their doctor in a while, you know, some patients with, like we saw, cancer-related fatigue can be five, ten years uh, later. You can still have that problem, and I see that in the, in the office for sure. Um, if you have somebody who's not seeing their doctor regularly, uh, then I think that's definitely a red flag because somebody should be uh, checking and ruling out those uh, medical causes of fatigue. I don't know. Do you have anything else? Probably. Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, my question is, so when the patient comes in for the initial evaluation and, you know, normally you say, how do you feel? Um, how do you ask that question? Are you fatigued or like, how do you, um, you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, right. Normally, the normal question to people are, how, how are you feeling? So now when you want to just focus on fatigue, mm -hmm. How do you separate that? Yeah, so I ask them, do they, I basically ask them, do they feel fatigued? That's a, this is a great question. Um, I should have put that, um, I should make a slide out of that. That's a good question. Um, I usually ask them, do they feel fatigued? And I see, I ask if they feel fatigued throughout the course of the day. Do they feel fatigued out of proportion to what their normal activity is? And then do they feel refreshed uh, after a nap? And also the amount of daytime napping, I didn't go into that, but the, the, there is evidence of daytime napping uh, a lot of patients who take the daytime, uh, who do daytime napping and things like that. So that can, those are, can all be kind of, um, uh, you know, indicators. And our next 20 minutes is going to be all about screening. Yeah, actually, so, that's a good point. Which, so, so that'll hopefully answer in depth. But basically, it's just, you know, you're going you're gonna to see two things again and again through the next 
course of this. One is exercise is the best medicine, and two, you got to ask, right? Those are really your takeaway points. You can all go now. Now, we do have just a couple more minutes before we bring on our next speaker. If there are any questions, otherwise, I'll get off the stage again. Too early in the, in the game to ask this question, but in reference to the exercise piece, like, for instance, modalities like yoga or tai chi, yeah. like, are there studies that have indicated those with having that study? So the question is, are there studies on complementary like yoga and Tai Chi? And the answer is yes, absolutely. And I believe the course will be going over that. If not, we'll answer it at the end. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.